Amen. We're going to be in the book of Matthew this morning. Hey, good to see you guys. Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to pick up, we've had a couple of, maybe two or three messages on, on Satan in the last six months or so. We're going to do another one on Satan today. So let me pray for just a moment and we'll look at this passage in Matthew 16. I'm just going to ask the Lord for, for His help. Lord, I thank You so much for Your grace. Oh God, Your grace and Your mercy are just glorious. God, we love You for Your patience. We love You for Your, your perfect justice and and the way into your presence by Christ's righteousness. We praise you for forgiveness of sin and for offer of life in Christ. Oh, how I pray you'd teach us to be wise today, Lord. Help us to learn to be wise. Teach us to walk in faith and enjoy in the knowledge of our Savior. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew sixteen thirteen. Matthew sixteen and verse thirteen. I'm gonna I'm gonna read the whole section here. And by by studying this, we're gonna learn another way where we become aware of, of Satan's ways, of, of Satan's devices. Matthew sixteen and I'm gonna read thirteen to twenty-eight. There's a couple Bibles on the back table if you don't have one, but <clears throat> verse 13, Matthew 16, 13. Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? How did the Lord decide it was the right day to ask that question? They they said. Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. The word bar there means son of, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, knowing that he is the Savior is a supernatural revelation. Nobody knows this by their own flesh. This is something God grants to men. And he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, verse 18, and I also say to you, you are Peter, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, there's two words there, Petros, Petra. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes 
and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. May the God of heaven, may the Lord help you and I as we listen to and meditate on his holy and infallible word. One of the reasons where we've uh, endeavored to do this little uh, series that we, we touch on every now and then on, on Satan is, is trying to answer the question, do you know who Satan is? Do you know who the enemy is? Do we understand his, his ways? One of the words that was used, and I think the first message that we did was devices. Satan's devices are referred to in that word, devices. Um, when, when the apostle is asking the Christians to be aware of his devices, that's the word lure. Do you remember that? And when you think about a fish who sees a lure in the water, um, the fish almost has to attack it if it's the right kind of lure. And that's what's in mind there. Uh, Satan uh, is, is, is clever in his works to, to attract and to draw men into his Purposes, And so it's my hope to help you be aware, more aware of how to be aware of him and, and to take uh, care in our struggle against Satan. Let me, let me read you some of his names just to remind you. Many of his names are actually descriptions of him. He, he is called Satan. That is one of his names. He's called the devil. Here's some of his other names. Tempter, Beelzebub, enemy, evil one. These are all descriptive names. Belial, adversary, deceiver, dragon, father of lies. Do you want to know what that means in Greek? <laughs> He's the father of lies. That's where lies come from, isn't it? He's a liar, murderer, sinner. These are all different names that we would come across looking for a way to understand and describe him. Do you remember the parable of the sower in Matthew 13? I believe that was probably where we were at last when we did a message on uh, Satan. In In the parable of the sower, Satan is figured by something in that parable. Do you remember what it is? Do you remember what was in that parable? It's a bird who eats the seed. What is the seed? It's the word. 
When the word is sown and the word is not understood, the bird snatches it away. That was kind of the, the main heart of, of trying to understand how Satan works against men. Your not understanding the word might not mean you don't understand English. It might mean that you understand the English, but the, the words kind of come in here in that little field between your ears and the little seeds of the word are sitting there in the field. And, and a few seconds later, you just kind of forgot all about it because there's other things on your mind. Un- understanding kind of means they, 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 they sink in and they, they, they make the impact they're intended to make. The word of God is meant to change us. It, it's meant to take the worldly and initially the unsaved, the worldly, the fool, and, and the Word converts them. The Word changes you. The Word changes a fool into a wise man. The Word is a, a glorious power of God for men. But when, when the Word is unattended and the man's heart, Satan just snatches it away. And if you're distracted with, with pressures on your life right now, even these words that, that come out of God's Word, these words will just, just slide out the back door and, and your mind is jumping to the next task of the day or of tomorrow. So we were taught, we were reminded to take care with, with the Word and not let it be snatched away. He lies in wait to steal from the unengaged. He lies in wait to steal that word from the heart who won't understand this word. Well, in this passage here that we we read today in uh, Matthew 16, we're going to hopefully analyze another way that Satan takes advantage of men. And so as the as the Lord and, and His disciples arrive in this place called Caesarea Philippi, He asks the question, who do people say that I am? You know, what are, what, what's, what's the rumor? What are the opinions of men in the world right now? I, I thought it was very interesting that one of the answers is Jeremiah. That was just a really interesting answer to me. Some, some, somebody suggested that, well, maybe he's Jeremiah. Who do you say that I am? And Peter is the one who, who, who jumps forward to answer the Lord when, when the Lord says, okay, there, there are ones who, who say, you know, these things. Who do you say? And this is so important for you. Every man in his own heart is going to stand before God with what you think of who the Christ is. You will be standing before the Lord for that. You can ride the theory and the opinion of your spouse, but ultimately your faith in Christ and your life in Christ is really where it's at for each of us, isn't it? Who, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. That word Christos is a word coming all the way back from the most old prophets who had prophesied about a coming Messiah. That Hebrew word Messiah means the anointed one. And when the 
the scriptures were translated into Greek. That Messiah, anointed one, was then called Christos, which is the Greek word. And so the mind and the heart of the believing Jew thinking about Messiah is the promised one who would come and save God's people. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and he says, you're blessed, Simon. You have been blessed. Chiefly because you didn't come up with this on your own. You can't derive this sort of thing on your own. You won't know this on your own. And the Lord Jesus says, you came to know this by God's revealing it to you. Your knowledge that the Lord Jesus is the Messiah is a gift from God. It is a blessing of God that you know this, Simon. My Father in heaven has revealed it to you. And you are Peter. You are Petros. Not Simon anymore. You're Peter. You're you're rock. And on this Petra, P-E-T-R-O-S is the name. P-E-T-R-A is the, the rock. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We'll take a moment or two and think about the about the rock and the rock and and then we're also going to be thinking about he he said also he said whatever you loose and whatever you bind will be loosed and bound. Peter, I'm going to give you the keys. Whatever you loose will be loosed. Whatever you bind, be bound, he's told. Which, I, I, I'm not sure Peter would have necessarily even known what the Lord meant by that. And then, and then the Lord Jesus said, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Don't say it to anybody. At, at much of the Lord Jesus' ministry, too many people coming around to where they were really interfered with the the ministry of the Lord Jesus and the disciples. And so that may be why it was suggested that nobody should say that He is the Christ. The Lord Jesus doesn't say. But this is an amazing moment. This is really a, a very, very intense, great moment in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. An amazing a day or even just hour in the lives of the disciples to hear this so clearly uh, professed by the Lord Jesus, the, the, the curious renaming of Peter and, and these words given to him about the keys. The, the idea of Peter being called Petros and on this rock, I will build my church has been interpreted three ways historically. The Roman Catholic Church says that Peter is has become the father of the church in a sense by him being named uh, Petros. And on, on you, Peter, on you, Petros, on you, rock, I will build my church. And so the Roman Catholic Church has also said because of that, the popes, that is, that the, the word Pope means father. The, the fathers of the church in, in succession without authority. They would have the chief authority in the church according to Roman Catholic teaching and tradition. And have the chief authority to be able to offer salvation or not. 
Uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that salvation is only uh, in and through the Roman Catholic Church. But you'll remember that only the Lord Jesus is called the cornerstone of the church. The Lord Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And so when we're thinking about uh, a rock in the church, since we know the Lord Jesus is the chief cornerstone, that this the, the Roman Catholic theory loses credibility uh, quite quickly, even though in Ephesians 2, 21, you will remember believers are referred to as stones in a spiritual building that God is building. God is building a spiritual house with spiritual stones, and Christians are stones. But this this reference to Peter being the rock and then, and then the Petra on which... Uh, God will build His church. It, it just it, there's there's no uh, real scriptural evidence that 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 Peter has this Roman Catholic authority that the Roman Catholics have have ascribed to it. How is the church actually built? What is what is the the means by which a person becomes a member of the church? It's belief. It's a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a knowledge of your poor sinner status before God. It's a knowledge of your condemnation before God. And when we confess our sins and and realize that the Lord Jesus is our only hope of righteousness, our only exclusive great hope of righteousness, this is in essence what Peter had said when he said, you are the Christ. And, and the Petra is this, is this statement of knowledge and hope that Peter has in understanding the gospel. This is, this is the rock on which the church is going to build. This is the thing by which every single person who would enter by the narrow gate, every single person who is being constructed into a, a holy dwelling place of God and the Spirit is by this true saving faith in Christ. And so this rock is Peter's confession. It's his understanding of who the Lord Jesus is. The keys, the keys that it is said that he will have also has uh, traditionally had a couple of different uh, interpretations. The Roman Catholic Church says what I had mentioned to you a moment ago, that the keys indicated his, uh, his, his authority to open salvation to some and to close it from others. It was, um, and, and if someday we, we study some of the Roman Catholic doctrine that came after the Reformation, we would see that um, they really went down this road of um, those, those men who were beginning to challenge the Catholic Church were challenged back by the, the bishops and the, and the theologians of Rome and said, you, if, if you leave us, you will go to hell. And so <clears throat> there's this idea that Peter's keys are, are the proof of this uh, authority in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. The second uh, theory about the keys says that ministers in general have the authority to proclaim the forgiveness of sin, that is to preach the gospel, to announce the forgiveness of sin and and to open up salvation to those who would hear the gospel. And the third one is 
just simply a preaching of the gospel. And when when Peter is told by the Christ, um, you are given the keys, the things that you loose and the things that you bind was understood that Peter is the one who opened up the gates of the gospel, if you will, or, or, or the gates of eternal life, if you will, to at least three different groups in the immediate time following the ascension of Christ. The first one was to Jews. Peter got to preach that great, amazing sermon in, in, uh, in the book of Acts. I think uh, uh, I'll, I'll look at it in a minute. But Matthew 23 is... It, Pictures the opposite sort of thing here. Matthew 23, 13, the Lord Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, you shut up the kingdom. The scribes and Pharisees, by their preaching and their teaching, closed the doors to the kingdom. Okay? And he went on to say, You neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. There is this kind of understanding and preaching that has been taking place in Jerusalem. Even those who, who had the truth of God, they, 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 they put it forth in such a way and they, they, they preached in such a way they weren't opening up heaven to anybody. They were literally closing the doors of heaven with, with the words of God by their, by their stupid-headed preaching and their ignorance of God. And so when Peter is, is being said, you're, you're, you're going to be given the keys... If we looked at Acts 3.12, there's this glorious opening of, of the opportunity of eternal life in his preaching. Look at Acts, uh, look at Acts 3.12. When Peter saw it, the person who was healed, People are amazed by that. When Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why look so intently at us as though by our own power godliness we had made this man walk. And he goes on to preach. It's quite a long sermon. Look at verse 14. Look at what he tells them. You denied the Holy One and the just. He's accusing them of their sin. He's accusing them of their blindness to the Savior. You killed him. You killed the just one. You asked for a murderer, Barabbas, instead to be granted to you. You killed the prince of life. Gospel preaching is the calling out of men and their sins. If you yourself did not come to Christ renouncing sins that are in your back pocket, sins that are in your heart, you haven't repented of your sins. You come to Him repenting of your sins. The, the preaching of, of Peter here in Acts is just calling them out for the things that they, they are standing there guiltless before God. They think they're actually exalted because they've done away with this blasphemer Jesus. And the preaching is calling them out. This preaching is saying, you guys have killed the author of life. Gospel preaching calls men out on their sins because when you come to God, you come to Him repenting of your sins. You come to Him saying, Lord, I'm a wretch. Lord, I'm a foul-mouthed thief. I'm an adulterer. I'm an idolater. Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted. You Jews who killed the Son, 
Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. You are offered full forgiveness even though you wanted a murderer instead of Christ. You're offered forgiveness. Your sins will be blotted away. Full forgiveness, full righteousness in Christ is this key to eternal life for those who are hearing the preaching of Peter. Then they're arrested and in chapter 4 and verse 3 and finally in chapter 4 and verse 4 it says many, many believed in the preaching of Peter. Thousands came to Christ in this first message and then in Acts chapter 8 there's preaching to some Sumerians. So here's another group of people. They're non-Jews, the Sumerians. Hear the preaching in Acts chapter 8 and then there's another example in Acts chapter 10. A man named Cornelius. He's uh, an Italian um, I don't think it's right to call him a general, but maybe he's a general. He's in charge of many Italian soldiers. And he comes to Christ. Peter goes to his house and preaches to him and his family. And they all hear the gospel. They hear the charge of sin. They hear the offer of life in Christ because of his death and resurrection. So, I believe it's right to see the the keys given to Peter that, that he was the one who, who, who had opened the doors, the gospel doors. And if you recall, what happened when Cornelius, the Gentile Italian man and his family become Christians? What happens when Peter goes back to Jerusalem and says, hey, guess what? A bunch of Gentiles became Christians the other day. They were like, what? What? Italians can't become Christians? Gentiles can't become Christians. And they had to discuss it for a little bit so that Peter could explain to them why he knew that this was okay. The the Apostle Peter had his own vision from God explaining to him that he would go and he would preach and he would open the offer of eternal life even in Gentiles. It's a miracle. It's amazing. The Jews did not foresee this. It is glorious. The offer of life is open to all who would repent, come Christ. So in verse 21, back here in uh, Matthew 16, verse 21, the Lord explains the kingdom mission. He, he goes back to the subject of, now, now that he's had this little talk with, uh, with, with the disciples and, and make some explanations to Peter about his confession and the keys, the Lord explains some more of his actual mission on earth and, and, and what he's doing and, and how he's going to be preparing to accomplish all of his works, which is the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Christ. He, he, he makes this known to them. He's explaining this to them. And Peter says, there is, you are not going to do this, Lord. I, I will not let this happen. Your enemies will not kill you, Lord. And, and Peter's answer is rebuked, and he's called Satan, and he's said that his mind is not godly. Peter's called, say, get thee behind me, Satan, is what is said to him. You don't have on your, on, on your mind the things of God. No, on your, your, your mind is wrapped up with the things of men. So we need to, for a moment, consider the mindfulness of men or really what is the mindfulness of Satan because in, in, in a manner of speaking, it was Satan who has spoken this. And the Lord Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It, it, it wasn't that Peter was uh, possessed. We shouldn't think that Peter was possessed. 
we we shouldn't think that that Satan was in in some spirit form standing next to him and and the Lord was telling him to get out of the way. What has happened is is the things that have come out of Peter's mouth and heart really are of the spirit of the age. It it, it is of the the thinking and the the wisdom of Satan that Satan has just taught men to approve and and a new love and, and to appreciate. And Peter simply spoke that and so when the Lord says, get behind me, Satan, he's, he's rejecting this, this, this wisdom and this thinking that has come out of Peter's mouth there. So at verse 23 in chapter 16, he turned, said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. Look at the harshness of this rebuke on Peter. So the Lord here has given us an opportunity to just think about men's wisdom, your your innate wisdom or the wisdom you've learned from your childhood and from your culture. Peter focused on the killing. When, when the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to be killed, Peter focuses on this and, and, and Peter is, is not going to tolerate it. And when the Lord... Jesus speaks about what he is mindful of. The King James uses the word savorist. That's kind of a funny word, savorist. You savorist not, is what it says in the King James. I think the most helpful word is in Colossians 3.2, where it's translated affections. Your affections. So... Don't even use uh, mindful, which is what it says in, in the New King James. King James, savorist. It it's actually seems a little closer to uh, affections, savorist, because it has a little, it, it implies some desire in the person. You're, the, the thing that you're desiring. So mindful doesn't have that component to it, to me. But this is, this is what your heart is after. This is what your heart is drawn to. This is where your affections are, Peter. So Peter's desire, his affection is for the life of the Lord Jesus, right? He's, he's pleased for, he's attracted to, if you will. It's, it, it is what he wants is to preserve and to protect the life of the Lord Jesus. And honestly, when, when, when the Lord Jesus says these are Satan's words, you all should be like, that's a little bit, why? I mean, isn't it right to want to protect life? Isn't it right to want to stand by your friend who is being threatened to be killed and, and to protect them? There, 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 there is certainly some kind of wisdom or, or rightness to them, isn't there? This philosophy seems to have no appearance of evil. Peter doesn't seem to have said something wicked. But when he's called Satan, or when it's said that it is Satan's wisdom that has come out of Peter here, this really should catch our attention. We, we really kind of got to figure out how that this can be. And so we're going to think about worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom and try to get to the bottom of this a little bit and, and, and we'll get some help from this. When he said that you are not mindful 
of these things, Peter would have been probably brutally offended, hurt maybe. But would he listen? Would he listen? And, and, and this, is, this is for you as a disciple. If you know the gospel, if you have put your trust in Christ, if you're a Christian, then you are a disciple. It means you are to walk with the Lord Jesus. It means you listen to Him correcting you throughout the day. It means when, when you're thinking about bailing on a commitment you have to your congregation, when you're thinking about walking in some pattern of of sin, or when you have, when, when you've sinned in some way, that the Christian is rebuked by God in his spirit, or maybe by a friend who tells you that you've done this thing. What do you do? Do you listen? Do you hear it? And this is a great lesson for a disciple in Peter here, because Peter's the one who's got to hear this. He's got to listen to this. He's been told he's an offense to the Lord Jesus. And we all need to learn through this example to be listeners because falseness has many faces. In other words, what I've said in the past is you don't know what you don't know. And when Peter gets confronted by this, he's got two choices. He can get ticked at the Lord Jesus, maybe call him names, or maybe just say he doesn't know what he's talking about, or he can listen. Shut your mouth first. And listen. Go home and chew on it. Meditate on it. Pray on it. Listen. When somebody has the nerve to tell you, you know, you're kind of weak in this area of your life. When somebody has the nerve to tell you that even one time, listen. You have just been handed gold. You don't have very many friends who will tell you something like that. You don't often hear anything like that because they don't want to offend you. They don't want to get in your business. When someone will say that, shut your mouth, say, thank you, and listen. Take it home and stew on it. Even if they were only a forthright one-fourth correct, you can be blessed by what they had to share with you if you'll listen and if you'll hear it. Satan doesn't need to possess somebody in order to use them or to speak to them. That's one thing we learn through this. He doesn't have to possess somebody to use them. We learn that from this passage. Peter's mind is no different than yours. As in the, the some of the cultural differences and whatnot are different, but in, in many ways, his mind is very similar to yours. It's formed by the wisdom. It's formed by the compassion that's in the world. It's formed by what he learned from his mom and, and from his friends. His, his sense about uh, protecting the Lord Jesus is just a natural thing for a man to, to know. According to the Lord Jesus, this was not formed by God. This is not of the mind of God. This compassion that he's exercising isn't of God's mind. And so, when this gets shown to you and I, that means we need to learn to unlearn the world's wisdom. 
when, when it's been pointed out to you that you're, you've got a principle that's the world's, you have to unlearn it so that you're not lured into Satan's traps. So here's the trap. Here's the trap. Men want life. Peter wanted life. He assumed Jesus wanted life. And so when Jesus says, Lord, you can't lose your life. Don't lose your life, Lord. All of us would resonate with that, wouldn't we? His words sound wise. And Peter would even physically defend the Lord Jesus. If I'm not mistaken, he had a sword on the night of Jesus' arrest. And he's willing to take that against the enemies of the Lord. He loves the Lord. Is that zeal and loyalty from the mind of Satan? I mean, this is kind of the hard part of the story. The Lord Jesus looked at him and says, Get behind me, Satan. And so, there, there really is something quite malevolent going on. Evil, bad, excuse the, uh, the word. Yeah, maybe we don't use a whole lot. There's something evil going on here. So we've got to be thinking real seriously about misplaced compassion. Misplaced compassion, according to the words of Christ, is demonic. You get that? I mean, this is a, a very dramatic... A very serious thing here for this. What, what the, probably the greatest confession of conversion in the New Testament is Peter's confession. And then two seconds later, he said, he hears someone say, get behind me, Satan. So he's, he's at the mountaintop and two and a half seconds later, he's in the deepest ditch because he's done such a bad thing. A Christian learns from this lesson, and the Lord Jesus fleshes this out, a Christian learns this lesson that you give up your life in the service of God. That's what you learn. And this is why it's not wise to try to protect life in this way. We'll flesh it out a little bit. But a Christian has learned from the Lord Jesus that he gives up his life in the service of our Lord. So there's the principle stated very clearly at verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, this is right after Peter's rebuke, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will Find it for what profit is it to a man if he gains a whole world and loses his own soul? If you use your life to make your life, you will lose it. If your life is for you to make your life, if that's how you're dispensing your life, if it's for you, you will lose it. These aren't hard words to understand what the Lord has said here, is it? It's very simple to understand what the Lord has said. If if your life is about you, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for God in magnifying His name, in glorifying His name, in serving Him and His name, you will gain it. This is the principle. This is heavenly wisdom for loss and gain, for loss and profit. 
The Lord Jesus actually uses the word prophet here, doesn't he? If you profit everything in the world but lose your soul, then what did you profit? But if you lose everything in this world, if you live in a shack instead of a 3,000 square foot house, and if the newest car you ever had was six years old, or 20, or 30, it's not, it's not bad to have new cars, it's okay. But if, if that's what you're about, if this is what your life is for, is for, 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 for profit in this world, and you lose your soul, was that a good transaction? This is what the Lord Jesus is teaching Peter. The Lord Jesus was in the process of giving his life for God's glory. The Lord Jesus is the perfect man. He is the second Adam. He is the man who is living all righteousness in the service of God. And as he explained to his disciples what he was about to do, that he would be killed, he's talking about his ministry. He's talking about his life and how he would serve. And when the disciple says, you shall not do this, you cannot do this, I'm I'm not going to let them kill you. In, in Peter's love, he was preventing his friend from glorifying God. He wanted to stop his friend from serving the Lord in his own self-sacrificing service. So Peter is saying, I'm not going to let you serve God in that way. I'm not going to let you glorify God in that way. So this is why what he said was such a terrible sin. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom. And actually, this was something for gain. The Lord Jesus giving his life as a sacrifice is for gain. It wasn't for loss, but Peter didn't know that. His, his worldliness didn't know that. He didn't understand this. And so this is really important for us to listen carefully here. He didn't know the principle. He didn't know that he didn't know this. Peter didn't know that he was worldly wise. He had to learn this from the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus had to explain to him, Peter, if we are followers of God, if we're servants of God, if you're a follower of me, then you're going to give up your life and gain everything. But he didn't know this. He had to be trained to know this. So in a way, what Peter already knew prevented him from asking any questions. He could see the situation and it was going to be bad if they're going to kill Jesus. And and so his pride and his knowledge did not allow him to say, what do you mean, Lord? What do you you mean that they're going to kill you and then you're going to die and rise from the grave? For some reason, Peter did not go into question mode. Did you notice that? He just went straight to lecture mode. He's not a listener. He didn't, he didn't listen well. Instead, oh, I hope I didn't do this. But, but, but he took up an argument with the Lord Jesus. I mean, literally. How many of you would argue with Jesus? Maybe all of you on a bad day. <laughs> Maybe. But think about that. Think about your own arguments with the Lord Jesus. When, when, when you're reading the Word of God and, and God puts His finger on, a, on, 
on a sin in your life and you feel resistant about it, don't argue with the Lord Jesus. Shut your mouth and, and listen for a minute. Try, try to make sense of, of the wisdom of God and, and, and do some listening. Listening to His Word. Listening to His teaching and preaching. Because we don't know what we've missed. We don't know what we've ignored. We don't know how stupid we are sometimes. Because we're relatively, fairly, easily self-satisfied. Colossians 1.9. Colossians 1.9, please. Paul, speaking about the Christians at this place, and, and he's, he's sending the letter to them at Colossae, and he's talking about how, how he's praying about them, how, how he loves them, what he knows about their conversion, etc. And so then he says, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard about your conversion and your faith in Christ, we do not cease to pray for you and ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. When people are converted to Christ, when you become a Christian in Christ, you, you, you've got a basket over here for spiritual wisdom and understanding, for godly wisdom and knowledge, and it's empty when you become a Christian. And you've got another basket that's, that's got worldly wisdom in it. And it's full. And in some of our cases, it's like over the top full with worldly wisdom. And what Paul is saying here in this prayer for the, for the Colossians is that since the day we heard about your conversion, we are praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Because you're empty. Your, your minds need to become filled with the spiritual wisdom of God to live the Christian life. Or you're going to actually live a, a worldly, stupid life. This is why Peter didn't know what, what, what he didn't know. He wasn't a, a learning disciple yet. Look at Romans 12 too. We've been there many times over the last few years. Look at Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, Christians need to prove they know the will of God. They don't need to prove it to God. They, they need to prove it for themselves. In other words, don't assume that you already have proven it. Don't, don't assume that you, you're, you're right in all things. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you know that your wisdoms are wise? Or do you know that some of your wisdoms, in Peter's case here, were actually foolish? James 3, 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Do you know some kinds of wisdom you won't hear because you're partial? 
some some things will be taught to you as wise and they've come from God's word, but maybe because of the person speaking, maybe because of the subject that it's on, the thing that it's touching in your life, your partialness will shut it off and you won't hear it. But wisdom that is from above isn't partial. You know what that means? It means you love truth no matter what. It means if, if God has said it, if God is showing me this, if God is teaching me this, it's true. I will not be a fool and stand here in my own worldly wisdom. I won't. That's what that means. Got some great examples that I would like to read you here. Worldly wisdom comes naturally to us and it says things like the Lord helps those who help themselves. Worldly wisdom will say something like that. Romans 5, 6 should contrast with that particular verse. Look at Romans 5, 6. We've learned that the Lord helps those who help themselves. Some of you think it's in the book of Proverbs somewhere. Look at Romans 5, 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who does the Lord help? Helpless. The Lord helps the helpless. There's godly wisdom. There's heavenly wisdom. Isn't it glorious? We could talk about many other things in this realm, and and, and I'm not going to. I I just want to focus for a second, and then we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I want to focus just for a second. The Lord Jesus, in, in the closing of this whole section, He speaks about your interest in profiting. Men know it's better to profit than to lose. He says if you want to profit, you should do something. If you want to lose, if you are willing to lose, you should do something. The Lord Jesus makes it very plain. How do you lose? How do you lose according to what the Lord Jesus says in the end of this passage? Keep your life for yourself. Make your life in this world. Preserve your life. How do you profit forever? How do you profit? How do you gain forever? You lose your life for God and His sake. And, and the Lord Jesus wonderfully, beautifully is, is, is saying this as He's doing it, right? The Lord Jesus is on His way to the cross. He's saying, lose your life like I lose my life. You pick up your cross. You come after me. Your life isn't for you to build your life. Your life is for giving glory to God. Your life is for bringing praise, for serving Him. And, And you will profit. What good will it do for you if you gain the whole world, if you profit the whole world and lose your soul? What are you going to give for your soul? What kind of money do you have to buy soul with? The only thing you're going to redeem your soul with is by the grace of God and the blood of Christ. Right? That's how a man will be redeemed. That's how a man is redeemed. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 11 and and remember the body and blood of Christ as we get ready to have communion together this morning. 